So before we get started, I want to make sure that all of you have sermon notes. In those sermon notes are a number of scripture passages. And uh, if you don't have uh, sermon notes in your hand available to, to follow me with those scripture passages, just lift your hand and Terry will pass them out. Oh, children and children's church. If you have children that you'd like to uh, that you'd like to send to children's church, uh, uh, please uh, do that at this time. Follow, follow. Who do they follow, Terry? Adriana. Adriana. Follow Adriana. So, how do you all like camping this morning? <laughs> yeah, did you like like where you slept last night? <laughs> One other thing I want to say before we get started, and that is that um, it's been said that when you listen to a sermon, the chances are 5% that you will put something into practice in your life. That percentage rises to 20% if you tell somebody else what it is that you're going to put into practice because of what you've heard and ask them to give you feedback. And that 20% rises to 90% when you ask someone else to coach you as you put into practice what it is that you heard in a sermon. So at the end of this morning's sermon, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment about what you will put into practice from what you hear preached this morning. Deal? Deal. Deal. So how many of you uh, have ever played the game of Monopoly? Wave your umbrellas. Game of Monopoly. How many of you like playing the game of Monopoly? So, so you know the game of Monopoly is based upon streets in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And the goal is to uh, gather as many uh, monopolies as possible on properties and, and uh, businesses uh, and put hotels and houses on them and charge rent for people. Uh, the person who wins at the end is the one who has the most businesses, the most property, and the most money. Now, I, I have a theory, it's a small one, but I have a theory that more compassionate people find it harder to play Monopoly than less <laughs> compassionate people. I mean, in order to win at Monopoly, you have to enjoy sending other people into bankruptcy. <laughs> I mean, you have to be a little bit ruthless to play Monopoly. I, I once heard of someone who, when they played with their younger siblings, changed the rules so that their younger siblings couldn't buy the two most expensive properties on the board, Park Place and Boardwalk. You begin to see why more compassionate people might wish that Monopoly had some compassionate rules. but. But then again, that would ruin the game of, of Monopoly, wouldn't it? It may surprise you that one of the most repeated characteristics of God in the Old Testament is the word compassionate. You didn't expect to find it in the Old Testament, perhaps, but we find it first stated in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, that reads, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then that definition, that characteristic, that attribute of God, of compassion, is repeated over and over and over in such places that have become known in the Old Testament as the laws of compassion. Listen to some of them or follow along as you read in the notes. 
Exodus chapter 22. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In Leviticus 19, this is compassion for the disabled. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. And then later in Leviticus, if you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 24, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. But later in Deuteronomy 24, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or the, take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. And then later, when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, you are slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. The laws of compassion. One of the things that the laws of compassion teach us or show us is that God really cared about how his people treated others. Sad to say, by the time we get to Jesus' day in the New Testament, the Jewish religious leaders had redefined God's compassion. They had de developed a system that excused how they harshly treated other people. They had made up rules to circumvent God's compassion, which, by the way, is why you will never want to play Monopoly with a Pharisee. <laughs> it's also why Jesus had to be very clear that he wanted his followers to treat other people differently as well. One of those places where we find him spelling out how he wants his followers to treat others is in Luke chapter 6. And in, beginning in verse uh, 27, we, we are going to look at three ways that Jesus wants his followers to treat people differently as a reflection of God's compassion. Let's talk about three of those differences. Difference number one. Jesus begins in Luke 6, verse 27. He says, but to you who are listening, and by the way, these are code words for those of you who are serious about following me. Those of you who are really paying attention to what it means to be my disciple. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So if we're to capsulize all of this in a nutshell, difference number one would, be, would sound like this. We initiate good instead of retaliating. We initiate goodness instead of retaliating. That's how Jesus wants his followers to treat other people. 
The laws of compassion included this one in Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now when the Pharisees read that verse, they did not focus on the word love. They focused on the phrase, among your people. And in so doing, they felt they were under no obligation to be nice to people who weren't nice to them. They felt under no obligation to be nice to people who weren't like them, who weren't a part of their group. What they had done in their relationships is they had taken the prerogatives of the Jewish court system and how the Jewish court system treated criminals and applied it to their personal relationships, which allowed them to excuse their behavior of revenge and retaliation. They had forgotten the parts of the law, conveniently forgotten the parts of the law that said in Exodus 23, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, kill it. No, no, he says, be sure to return it. Initiate good, not retaliate. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Jesus is saying that we, we're not only just to not retaliate, but we are to do something positive. We are to take the initiative. We are to do something good. And he gives us some, some examples. Uh, pray for them. Do something good for them. Wish them well. Now Jesus uses, admittedly, uses the Hebrew custom of overstatement to make his case, to get his point across. But we still can't deny the radical nature of what Jesus is saying to us. And what he's suggesting to us, frankly, if you're anything like me, it goes against our human nature. It goes against our natural response. But the way Jesus is treating, uh, talking about treating people isn't a sign of weakness or softness. It's a sign of strength. Because it takes a strong will to consciously choose to not do what's the easiest thing to do, which is retaliate. But rather to think of ways to initiate good in an unusual, in an awkward situation. A number of years ago, I had some people who were, I felt were mistreating me, and I understood very well the natural response. I, I laid awake at nights thinking of ways to get back at them, to retaliate, to, to express revenge. And my problem was I, I wanted to retaliate and still look holy. And that, that was a, a bit of a circus trick. And then toward the end of those nights of sleeplessness, God said to me, Rich, I, I don't want you to be an agent of my wrath. I want you to be an agent of my grace. What can you do to initiate good in this situation? Well, in, in one person's uh, situation, I knew that they were concerned about their five kids who were in college. I knew they prayed about them. And so I called them up and I said, can I come pray with you about your kids? And he, he said, yes. And I went to pray for him. Now, I don't know how much that changed him, but I know it changed me. It caused me to want to initiate goodness in his life. St. Augustine said, many have learned how to turn the other cheek, but very few have learned how to, how to love the person by whom they were struck. Difference number one is to initiate good instead of retaliating. Difference number two, 
We practice giving instead of getting. I love one of Charlie Shedd. Charlie Shedd is the creator of Peanuts. Uh, Charlie Shedd's one of his favorite stories is of a little Sunday school boy who, who went to Sunday school and heard the Sunday school teacher say this. Now remember, children, we are here to help other people. To which the little boy raised his hand and asked the teacher, Teacher, what are the other people here for? <laughs> and that seems to be the attitude of the Pharisees. What are other people here for? Jesus says in Luke 6.31, Do to others as you would have them do to you. But the rabbis had, had taken that statement and turned it on its head. They had the reverse of that. Which in so many words, instead of focusing on how would other people want to be treated in a way that they would appreciate, the rabbis used how other people treated them as a barometer for how they treated other people. Instead, Jesus says, if you love those who only love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. These weren't acts of love. They were acts of self-indulgence. And then he continues in verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to repay, be repaid in full. These weren't loving relationships. They were business transactions. And Jesus is saying, I want you to practice focusing on giving, not what you're getting. Some of you are familiar with the five love languages. I think I can remember them. Uh, time, touch, words of affirmation, uh, gifts, acts of kindness, and gifts, right? Those are the five, five act, uh, love languages. And when you learn the five love languages, you kind of learn what's yours. You know, what, what speaks to you when someone else does an act of kindness or spends time, quality time with you, that's in your love language. And the real temptation is to want to love other people in your love language, not theirs. That's getting, not giving. What Jesus is talking about is focusing on others, what we can practice giving to them, not just getting from them. And so he gives us an idea of what that might look like in verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What I didn't tell you about the person who was mistreating me is that he wasn't the only one. There was another. And uh, this person even was closer to me than the first person I told you about. And I stayed awake at nights, kind of lumped them together, trying to think of ways to retaliate, to get back at them. And God spoke to me, as I mentioned a few moments ago. And then I began thinking, God, what, what can I give this person? This person and his wife had four small children. Kathy and I had four small children at the time. And uh, all four of their children were sick at home. And I, I, knew, I, I knew what it was like to have four small children sick at the same time and what it was it must especially be like for the wife. And so I grabbed one of my daughters and we went shopping for little you know, dollar gifts at the dollar store for each of the, of the kids to give them. And then, and then went over to the house and gave them their gifts and explained why, we, we know what it's like and here's something for your kids to do while they're cooped up in the house uh, sick. Now was it well received? Not initially, not for years. But what it did for me again as a follower of Jesus Christ 
is it put me in the position of having to treat differently someone who might be mistreating me. The second way that Jesus wants his followers to treat people differently is to practice thinking about giving. Now, you can't give everything, but you can give something. And you can ask the Lord, Lord, what can I give this person that is different from what they might expect from me? Difference number three. In Matthew 9, we have the story of the Pharisees criticizing Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. We read Jesus' response in Matthew 9, these words, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Learn what it means. Mercy, not judgment. Mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want your good deeds. I don't want your religious acts. I want your heart. I want a different response. Under the law that they had developed, the system that the rabbis had developed, it was very tempting for them to play God. And after all, they felt right in doing so. They were upholding the law. They were doing what is right. This is what God would expect of them. But it was not only tempting, it was addictive. You can get addicted to playing God in other people's lives. What one psychologist has called the adolescent habit of judging other people's motives and intents. So difference number three is we show mercy instead of judgment. Jesus said in verse 36 of Luke 6, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I said a few moments ago that the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the teachers, tended to base their relationship with others on the law, the criminal courts. But what Jesus is saying here is let the court system as an institution be focused on injustice and let us as individuals be concerned about relationships. Because you see, when we show judgment, when we practice judgment, when we're judgmental instead of showing mercy, there are some unintended consequences. One of them is that we tend to disrupt what God may be wanting to do in their life. If we're playing God in their life, then they have to answer to us. They have to somehow collect and gather as evidence of their goodness all their good deeds, which is the exact opposite of what you need to do to have a relationship with God because he gives grace to the humble and the penitent. The second unintended consequence is we tend to not acknowledge our own wrongness. By demanding rightness from other people, we give evidence that we understand what the standards are, but we do not acknowledge that we are beholden to those same standards. We forget that there's wrongness in us as well. And third consequence is we ruin relationships. When other people feel like they have to answer to us, when other people feel like they're, we're always looking over their shoulder, judging their motives, judging their intents, they feel like they're, like they're on trial. The 80-20 rule is applied in many different sections of life. In this area of relationship, there are people who focus not on the 80% of what you are doing well, 
but they focus on the 20% that you're not doing well. And that's what you hear about. You never hear about the 80%. One desert father said, there's a sort of person who seems to be silent, but inwardly criticizes other people. Such a person, he says, is really talking all the time. And other people hear them. And other people feel like they are on trial when they are around us. But you see, when we understand that mercy is undeserved, that mercy is unearned, then we will show mercy. Because people who have been shown mercy are likely to show mercy themselves. And the other thing that can happen when we show mercy is instead of ruining relationships, we will invite relationships. The picture that Jesus gives here is of the Eastern marketplace. And if you've ever been or seen pictures of an Eastern marketplace, you know that the booths are side by side by side by side. No social distancing. They're all crammed together and they know what each other sells and they know how each other does business. And if you're a business person who cheats on the weight of your product as you put it into the folds of the garment of the person who's buying, word will get around. But if you're the kind of person who puts it into their, into their carrying basket or their garment fold and you press it down and you make sure they get enough and maybe a little more, word gets around and you attract customers. And if we are the kind of people who show mercy in the marketplace of relationships, we will attract relationships as well. In our early years of ministry, my wife and I uh, had a difficult uh, teenager in our church. And uh, we sought any number of ways to, to love her, to spend time with her. But it always seemed to be rejected. And I remember one specific memorable lunch we took her to and uh, visited with her, shared with her, and she lit into us. Curse words, name calling, judging, condemning. It was a very uncomfortable lunch. Eleven years later, my wife and I are at a concert about 60 miles away in, a, in the Twin Cities. And uh, who should walk up to us but this young lady? We briefly exchanged awkward hellos. And then about three weeks later, we got a letter in the mail from her. I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs. She writes, As I think back over the old days at church, many feelings and memories flood over me. I've thought that I probably owe both of you countless apologies. However, given my plight in life at the time, I don't know how I could have dealt with you in any other way. I hope you don't misunderstand me here. I am in no way really defending or excusing myself. Every obnoxious, arrogant, manipulating comment or action said, it said far more about what was inside of me than anything about you. I was acting out my pain all over the place. It also took the forms of chemical abuse, overeating, compulsive perfectionism at school, and destructive relationships. She goes on to write, What I can see now is that you guys were simply in the path of my tantrums, my attempts to get rid of the pain. You did not create it, but rather through your commitment of love to me, you exposed it. You were like mirrors to me of what was inside. At that time, I couldn't bear to face it. Believe me, you two were not the only ones in my path back then. So thanks so much for allowing me to share this stuff with you, especially you. You two were the first, outside of my family anyway, to show a demonstration of love to me. 
I'm grateful for that, for it was an important gift at an important time in my life. Showing mercy instead of judgment invites relationships. So there are the three ways that Jesus wants us to relate differently to people, at least three of the ways he mentions in Luke 6. <coughs> Initiating good, practicing giving, showing mercy. But more important than the what to treat people, it's the how. And God even mentions that and reminds people of that in the laws of compassion. Do you remember what he said? Deuteronomy 24. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. That's repeated again and again and again. So why are we to treat people differently as followers of Jesus Christ? Because he initiated good with us. He practiced giving with us. He showed mercy to us. Pastor Steve Brown, national radio speaker, once said, when I became a Christian, two things happened. I got saved and I got loved. I got loved. Listen, the more you remember that, the easier it will be, the more likely it will be that you will treat other people differently. That's the take-home thought I want you to take with you this morning. The more we remember how Jesus treated us, the more likely we are to treat people differently. Especially those who are different from us. Did you notice as I read through the laws of compassion in the Old Testament, repeatedly the mention of foreigners was listed in those laws of compassion. Treat the foreigners among you with compassion. These were people from a different country. These were people from a different culture. These are people from different color background. What's interesting to me is when Jesus opens his ministry in Luke 4 and he reads from Isaiah 61 about how the day is coming when God's going to put favor on people and people are going to be treated differently in his ministry. Jesus closes, and the people love that sermon, but then he closes with these two stories, Luke 4. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any one of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many Israels uh, in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is saying, listen, God is giving mercy, showing love and grace and compassion to foreigners, to people from a different culture, different country, different color than you. How did the people of Nazareth respond? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The people of Nazareth protested violently that somehow God's mercy was for others, that they were expected to treat people from a different culture, a different color, a different background, differently as a follower of Jesus Christ than others were treated. A number of years ago when our two teenage daughters uh, were in high school, they were in a high school that was uh, 
Ricks uh, mixed racially, about 40% white, 40% black, and 20% other uh, ethnicities. And there just seemed to be a lot of tension. There were fights, there were knives drawn. And we've since learned that uh, one of our daughters even feared for her life from time to time. But as I heard about these stories, my heart was grieved because this was the high school my daughters went to. This was the high school a mile from our church. And it seemed to me that the church ought to have something to say to this tension. And so I brought it up to our white ministerium a few weeks later, and we talked about what was happening in our high school just down the street. And we started out by talking about, well, you know, the kids don't know each other. The kids from different racial ethnicities don't know each other because they're trucked in from other neighborhoods. And, and, and they don't know each other. They're afraid of each other. If they were friends, if they really knew each other, this wouldn't be happening. And then we dug a little deeper and realized, you know, the parents don't know the other parents. That's why they get so upset and defend their kids and raise the tension level. And then it got a bit more personal. And we looked at each other around the room and said, you know what? We don't know them either. The pastors from different ethnic backgrounds don't know each other either. And so we decided, look, if there's going to be a change in our kids in our high school or the relationship of parents from different ethnicities, it needs to start with us. And so there was a, a black ministerium, a ministerium of black pastors in downtown Orlando where we were pastoring at the time and called them up and got together, decided we were going to have a lunch together to get to know each other, to start with us, to start with the church. The church ought to say something. Uh, to this broken relationship. And so we had lunch together, and as we had lunch together, about 40 of us in the basement of a black church in downtown Orlando, we decided, you know what, we need to get to know each other better. So we decided to have a retreat, a one-night retreat, and a couple of us volunteered to set it up, and we went out to a very rustic campground outside of Orlando for one night together. And that evening after supper, I forget what we ate or who cooked it, but I remember sitting around outside campfire and listening to the stories of my black pastor friends and their experiences in the 60s and 70s of America. And my heart broke. It's a night that changed my life. I looked around the circle and I picked out a black pastor that came from a church similar to ours in size and makeup. And I said, Leroy, would you be willing to become sister churches? I want my people, not just pastors, but I want my people to know people from other backgrounds. And so Leroy said, yes. Yeah. So we, we arranged, I went back to my elders, and we arranged that uh, twice a year we'd share service. So the first night we did this, a Sunday night, we took our choir and our people and went down to their church in downtown Orlando. And I preached, and our choir sang, and afterwards we had supper together with the people from that black church. I had Leroy behind me as I was preaching, say, give me more, Rich, give me more. And I was coming to the end of my sermon, I'm saying to myself, that's all I got, Leroy, what else do you want? Um, and then six months later, they came to our church, and he preached, and their choir sang, and my kids said he was a more interesting preacher than I was. And we had lunch, we had supper together. And then Leroy, we said, Leroy, let's you and me and our wives get together. Let's have lunch together. And so we did. And then Leroy said, Rich, would you be willing to read scripture at a Martin Luther King Day service? Rosa Parks happened to be on the platform that day, and I got to meet her. But you understand that relationships were being formed, that hearts were being changed. Some of the people in my church said, Rich, why are we doing this? I said, listen, this is, the, this is what the church of Jesus Christ ought to do. And then a bit later, Leroy was starting up a, a black-owned and black-run grocery store in the black neighborhood of Orlando, 
often those businesses are owned by white people who take the money out of the neighborhood and he was starting something where the money would stay in the neighborhood and asked me to serve on his board. Listen, what Jesus is saying is that anybody, everybody, different than you, color, culture, color, background, he expects his followers to treat them differently. And so while Jesus may not really want to change the way we play Monopoly, I think he does want to have a say in how we treat other people differently. So at the end of your sermon notes, there's an opportunity for you to make a commitment. This is a, a personal commitment. I want you to take your sermon notes out on the very back page. It says, I will ask Jesus to help me treat people differently this week by, and then check one. If you're led to tell somebody else what you checked, that's fine. But this is, this is your choice. This is, this is your chance to practice. Some of you, your natural response is to retaliate. Maybe you need to work at initiating and asking Jesus to help you initiate good. Maybe for some of you, your, your natural tendency is to focus on what people get, give you rather than what you give them. Or maybe you tend to be very judgmental and withhold approval and not show mercy. To do all three would be asking too much, but I'm asking you to pick one. Pick one that you would like to work on this week. And, and then if you are led to share with your spouse or share with someone else what your natural tendency is and what you're going to ask Jesus to help you do to treat people differently in your life. There's an old Gaither song that goes something like this. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. Because the one who knows me best loves me most. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you because the one who knows me most loves me best. Let me give you just a moment to make your decision about which one you'd like to work on. Father, hear our hearts as we stand before you. As one of the people in the crowd one of the disciples that Jesus was talking to this day. How will we respond to be your people?